You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 19 through 29 today. And uh, I've had several of you uh, come to me and reach out, and I'm always encouraged uh, by these things um, to express uh, just thanks, gratitude for uh, preaching uh, on these verses, uh, including I've heard some comments that uh, folks being in the church for many, many years, uh, being Christians for many, many years, have never heard any sermons at all from Romans chapter 9. Um, we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, it's useful for our training in godliness. And so that means even scriptures like these that are sometimes difficult, and although these verses are difficult, they, they proclaim the greatness of our God uh, in, in ways that are seldom heard, I think. And, uh, and so it's good for us to, to look at these, uh, uh, these truths about God and His salvation for us. And, and as we move through these verses, we'll get to the end of chapter 11, and hopefully we'll be able to say with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And uh, so we pray, and uh, God's help, we ask for God's help to understand and believe uh, what we're studying today. Beginning in verse 19 of Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he, that is God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we approach your word humbly, gratefully. Um, that you have spoken to us, Lord. And, and we know these are words of life, words that that do equip and train us for godliness. And so we pray for your help today to understand the things that are meant to be understood, that you want us to understand, and, uh, and then to trust you, Lord, for the rest. And we pray that uh, in, in these moments that, uh, Lord, you would, you would speak to us and drive these truths deep in our hearts, that we might be transformed 
to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use me today. I pray uh, that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis that once asserted that the, the greatest barrier to faith today is the absence of any sense of sin. That, that, that people in years past uh, approached God humbly as a, as a man might approach a judge. But, but today it seems that each individual is a judge and that God is the one on trial. And it's interesting to see that shift. It's a huge perspective. Daniel Doriani notes how uh, the influences of our modern times, including things like critical theory, has led many people to believe that the greatest problems in our world today is, is oppression rather than sin, as the Bible describes it. And, and that God must answer uh, for the way in which Biblical Christianity is posted in, in the Bible that it, it promotes things like heteronormal activity among humans and, and how it may approach from the world's vantage point anyway, a repressive kind of sexual ethic, a, a racism, a, a capitalism, a, other forms of, of oppression, including the idea uh, that, he, that God structured uh, creatures, creation, uh, in ways that restrict each person's right to determine what they want to be. That God must himself, he must himself give an account for these things in our world. That God is on trial. It's not really a new idea if you think about it, because pride has always been the root of our sin, right? And so it's not surprising that these thoughts, but what tends to grate us as human beings, is the idea of a sovereign God, a God who creates, a God who defines the truth, a God who determines, a God who saves, and even a God who judges. And in many ways, that's what's prompted Paul to write uh, to offer a defense here in, in chapter nine, Ro Romans eight. He's made remarkable claims about God. God is the one who adopts believers into His family, the God who calls, a God who predestines, a God who justifies, a God who glorifies. And in Romans 9, it is God who does as He wills. He is a sovereign God, and He wills to reveal His power and His justice and His mercy in the world. Paul knows these things are quite offensive to our, uh, our, our human nature. There's a sense here in Romans 9 where Paul is offering a biblical defense of God. That is, how can God love Jacob but not Esau, according to verse 13? How does he call people to salvation apart from anything that they've done, good or bad? How can God do this, as he says in verse 11? How can God, according to verse 18, have mercy on whomever He wills and harden whomever He wills? 
And if salvation is not based on human will or exertion, as verse 16 says, but on God alone, how can God call anyone to account? If, if salvation is due to God's will and, and, if, and if we can't resist God's will, how can God still blame us? That's how Paul puts it there in verse 19, doesn't it? That's what he's saying. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist His will? It's a big question. It kind of gets in the, the, the common way we might put this today is how do we reconcile the sovereignty of God that is presented here and the responsibility of man? How do we reconcile those things? And it's an important question. And it's one we, we need to, to acknowledge that's behind some of these texts, isn't it? It's lurking behind them, uh, kind of, uh, in our minds anyway, coming to these things. And there's a couple of things I think we need to know about this. First, we need to know that this question has been debated for centuries. And it's really doubtful that uh, we're going to solve it this morning in one sermon. Amen? The reason that it is complicated divine sovereignty and human responsibility is because the Scripture teaches both of those truths. And you can find all kinds of different verses on either one of those things, that God is sovereign, such as Romans chapter 9, and that man is responsible. It teaches both. John Stott puts it as succinctly, I think, as anyone when it comes to salvation, but here's how he describes it. I think he's right. If anyone is lost, the blame is theirs responsibility. But if anybody is saved, the credit is, is God's, right? But those two things don't reconcile perfectly in our minds, do they? There's tensions that are there. Well, how does that work? How do these things work together? And, 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 and yet, both of those things are affirmed in the Scriptures over and over again. In Romans 9, perhaps we've been uncomfortable because Paul is emphasizing and explaining the sovereignty of God's side of this. Now, at the end of the chapter and into chapter 10, he's going to be talking about the human responsibility side of this. And he's going to give equal weight to both. God is sovereign in salvation. Man is responsible for his sins. And, and the challenge comes in figuring out how they work together. And we have to be honest and say there's a lot of mystery in that that we're never going to understand. This side of heaven, right? But the second thing, though, that we have to keep in mind when we talk about this stuff, I think, is, is that we need to keep the question straight. Because if we're not careful when we're talking about these things, we find ourselves having been kind of caught up in worldly ways of thinking and worldly opposition to these things, to all of a sudden we find that, that the question has shifted in our minds to, to something like this. How do we reconcile the sovereignty of man and the responsibility of God? Think of the audacity of asking it that way. And yet many times this is how this is approached, that God is somehow on trial and we are the judges. Beloved, I hope you know that couldn't be further from the truth today. Our God is a sovereign God without question or He wouldn't be God. And whatever trouble that we have in figuring out 
these things, our trouble is not God because He is righteous, He is good, He is sovereign, He is holy. Those things are without question. The trouble is with us, not Him. This is the basis for Paul's teaching here in our text today. The issue is, as verse 11 says, if God elects or chooses some to show his mercy to and others he passes over or even hardens like Pharaoh, then verse 19, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can he hold anyone accountable? If God is sovereign over salvation and no human can resist a sovereign God's will, then how can God hold man responsible? Why does he still find fault? And Paul doesn't answer every single one of the tensions between this and and this particular passage, Uh, nor does the Bible, I think, as a whole answer all of the tensions, but he does remind us of some things here that are important. First, we note this, three, three responses by Paul. First, we note the sovereign right of God in salvation. The sovereign right of God. His answer is jarring, again, to our sense of pride. Verse 20, when he says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who do you think you are? Now, now, Paul begins, he's rebuking the spirit of contention. I don't think he's rebuking someone who's asking genuine questions and who's desiring to understand more and asking honest kinds of questions. But I think in the context here in Romans 9, he's addressing someone who is persistently finding fault with God over these truths. Someone who is suggesting that God is unjust, as as he said in verse 14, that he is that God is not morally upright in his dealings with man. Someone who is trying to stand up against God and say, what right has God to punish anybody in judgment? What right has God to harden someone's heart? What right has God to save some and not everyone? To which Paul replies, have you forgotten who you are? And who God is? My, my mind went to Job and his uh, questioning of God and God's response to him. You remember Job 38, when the Lord answered Job, it says, out of the whirlwind, and he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And he tells Job, dress for action like a man, I will question you. And you make it known to me. And then God starts a line of questioning. And he says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, he asked Job. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. And for two chapters, God's overwhelming. God asked Job questions like this. In chapter 40, he begins to wrap up. He says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord. And he said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? And I laid my hand on my mouth. Do you not realize when we approach these things, your your smallness 
Brothers and sisters, your insignificance, your finite character, your mortality, your sinfulness, the smallness of our minds even, and understand, do you not realize the greatness of God that He is not the one on trial on these issues? It's a firm rebuke. It reminds us of the posture that we're to have in approaching God and even in, even in asking our questions of Him. Now, Paul gives us an illustration to make his point that God indeed has a right. He has the authority, the power, the righteousness to save and to judge mankind. Notice what he says in the second part of verse 20. Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now that analogy is found in several places in, in the Old Testament, but I think the one Paul I think the one Paul is referring to here is in Isaiah 29, verses 14 through 16. And this was when the prophet Isaiah was rebuking those whom uh, we're turning, trying to turn things up down, upside down by challenging and correcting God. They're, they're attempting to reverse their roles, uh, the clay telling the potter what to do, if you will. To which Paul is saying, has the potter no right over the clay? Has he no right? Now, now, now to compare humans to clay is not to demean mankind. That's not what Paul is doing here. We, we, after, after all, we are all created in the image of God, right? That's what Genesis 1 tells us. We're rational, we're responsible, we're moral, we're spiritual beings. Unlike animals, we're able to converse with God. But, but we must remember that God did form us out of what? Dirt, that's right. And it's humbling to think that way. There's an infinite distance, and, and, and perhaps the distance we might imagine between the potter and the clay in this particular analogy doesn't even capture the distance between an infinite God and His creation, do you see? But the point Paul is making here is not about creation. And it's critical to understand that. That's a misunderstanding of this text because Paul is talking about the potter, not the potter creating the clay, but the potter forming the clay, you see. And so some people will try to use this passage to say that, well, God deliberately created some people to go to hell. That is not true. That is not anywhere taught in the Scriptures. What Paul is dealing with here is the potter's right, God's right to deal with fallen man and fallen woman. Lloyd-Jones put it like this, the lump of clay is not humanity, it is fallen humanity in their sins. Not neutral, but fallen in sin. And you think about it, this is what Paul has been saying the whole time. He's not really saying much new here. He's already said concerning uh, Isaac and Ishmael just a few verses before, uh, who were both children of Abraham, both came out of uh, the same lump of clay, Abraham. And yet God formed 
One to dishonorable use and one to honorable use. Both Isaac and Ishmael sinners, both deserving of damnation, God chose to have mercy on one. That the promise would continue through Isaac and not Ishmael. And all the apostle is saying here is that God has the sovereign right to do that. Has the potter no right over the clay? Of course he does, because he's who? He's God. He does because he's God. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, because he's God. If the first part is teaching about the right of God and salvation, the second part is at least teaching us something about the reasons of God. So note, secondly, the glorious riches of God in salvation. The glorious riches. God's freedom to show mercy to some and to harden others, Paul says here in these next verses, is fully compatible with his character, his righteous character. Verse 22, he says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now think of, when you think of vessels of wrath there, think of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. Think about Moses and the Israelites which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What's he saying? Paul is doubling down on those who continue to question the character of God. He says, what if God did this? He He doesn't even really finish the question. It doesn't kind of logically flow, but he's like, what if he does this? And then the way he suggested and structures it, that this is exactly what God did. Noting that his actions are perfectly consistent with who he is. He is a God of both mercy and wrath, church. Both. In verse 22, God is said to endure with much patience vessels of wrath. It's an incredible statement. We pause and we think about, okay, if God... If man is really as hostile to God as Paul has communicated in Romans chapters 1 through 3, if if we're that separated, then why doesn't God just obliterate mankind? Well, he tells us here it's because this dark background of sin that God wants to highlight or, or to make known, is the word he uses there, the riches of his glory. Sinclair Ferguson, I think, is right to apply this to the exodus of Israel from Egypt and Pharaoh. And he puts it like this. He said, God wants to take this little people, speaking of the Israelites, who have become slaves in Egypt, who have no power, no hope, no rights. And he wants to bring them into a land of promise, flowing with milk and honey, and deliver them from the greatest nation in the world, the most powerful nation in the ancient Near East, Egypt. And he's going to, and what he's going to do, he's going to endure with much patience this man, Pharaoh, who is a hardened sinner and a vessel of wrath. And he's going to endure him with much patience. He could snuff him out with the first plague, right? 
But he endures in the second plague and the third plague and the fourth plague and so on. And Fergus is right. You read that story. We watch this man, Pharaoh, tighten his fist to God, don't we? Each time he, tight, he does what sinful man always does when left to himself. He tightens his fist to him. Even after the plagues, if you, again, read the story, there's moments, you know, Pharaoh was rationalizing. At one point he says, he says, oh, that really wasn't a plague after one of them. He's like, that really wasn't a plague. That was just some bad circumstances that came down the pike, and that wasn't from God, and he rationalizes it away. Another point, it happens after one of them, uh, he, he even turns to God, he says, God, if you get me through this plague, then I'll give my life to you. And as soon as it's over, you know what he does. He hardens his heart even more against God. Each time God's word comes to him, it hardens its heart. It's not just the proclamation of the gospel that saves people. The proclamation is necessary, but the power is not in the proclamation. The power is in God, isn't it? He must call. Only God saves. And each time Pharaoh hears the word of God, he hardens his heart, and it shows us that God is righteous in his judgment of Pharaoh. God is right to judge him in his sin. It's a terrible thing to think about, isn't it? Because it happens every time the gospel is preached. Understand when the gospel goes out, it's a beautiful thing, but, but, but there's a hardening that takes place. I've seen this many times as a pastor. I, I, I see it. You preach the gospel, and it is a delight to some, and you can tell that it's a delight to them. But to many other people, there is apathy on their faces. You preach the gospel, there is indifference in their lives. They hear it, it makes no difference. There's no passion for Christ in their life. There's no interest in spiritual things. They just keep hearing it, and they keep hardening themselves. And God works that hardness deeper into their hearts every time they hear the gospel and reject it. It's what happened with Pharaoh and it still happens today. And what Paul is saying here is as sad and tragic as this is, that this hardness only serves to show the righteousness of God in His judgment. He was right to do so. Notice how Paul carefully explains this. He describes, verse 22, the vessels of wrath simply, notice the phrasing, simply as those who are prepared for destruction. Do you see the phrase there? We are not told who or what prepared them for destruction, are we? But it's pretty clear again that God has not prepared them for it. Mankind, the Bible's testimony is that we prepare ourselves for destruction by our evil doing. Human responsibility, God punishes the vessels of wrath to manifest His displeasure against sin and to reveal His perfect justice. But then notice how He describes the vessels of mercy in verse 23. Did you see that? Who has prepared them beforehand? The vessels of mercy, what does it say? Who? God, He did. God prepared beforehand the vessels of mercy. Man prepares himself 
for destruction by his sin and evil. He, he needs no help in doing that. He's, we're sinners. That's human responsibility. But who prepares some for glory? Brothers and sisters, that is something only God does. Only he does. It's right there. God prepares them, and he does it beforehand. Do you see how this highlights the riches of his glory? The, 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 the reality of his judgment makes the riches of his glory shine even brighter. And that glory of his grace shines brighter against the background of his judgment and his wrath. Doriani writes, sinners neither earn glory nor deserve mercy. And God is not constrained to offer either. It is grace indeed that God has prepared us beforehand for glory. And just in case you think, well, maybe Paul's not even talking about us in here. Paul makes it clear he's talking about us, doesn't he? Verse 24, what does he say? Even us whom he has called. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying to us that God's showing mercy on whomever he wills and hardening whomever he wills, though it might be difficult in our minds and we're struggling with this in verse 18, that all of this is traced all the way back to God's character. This does not reveal some kind of character flaw in God. It's revealing his character that he is a God of mercy and a God of wrath. He is a righteous God in whom there is no fault in any of these things. John Stott again, just so pithy in his quotes, he says, It is because he is who he is that he does what he does. He acts out of his perfect character. So the Scriptures tell us that God has a right to do this, and since they do, we need to rest in that church. He's God. And we need to know also that God is God, that He is perfect and just and right. He is both a God of mercy and of wrath. And though we don't understand all the ways in which those two things work together, He is still a good and faithful God. And we rest in that. I don't have all my questions answered, but I rest in it because His Word tells me so. One more answer Paul gives, and it is the faithful fulfillment of God in salvation. The fulfillment. The fulfillment that he's speaking about here is the Scriptures, because Paul once again reminds us that God has foretold all of these things in the Scriptures to us. It's not just Paul's doctrine. This is Old Testament, all the way back to the beginning doctrine. In verses 25 and 26, um, Paul quotes two texts from Hosea, the prophet Hosea, to explain, here's what he's talking about here, God's, you may want to note this down, verses 25 and 26 is God's inclusion, His amazing inclusion of the Gentiles into salvation. Remember, because that's what they're struggling about. Why are so many Jews not coming to faith in Christ, and why are all these Gentiles coming in? Here's Paul's answer to why are so many Gentiles coming in. He said it's a part of God's plan. He says, verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Church, we all should be amening this because he's talking about us in these verses. Amen, right? He's talking about us Gentiles. The Gentiles, he said, who were not a part of Abraham's line, have now become sons of the living God. This is the good news of the gospel. Outsiders have become insiders. Aliens have become citizens of heaven. Strangers have been welcomed into God's family. Praise the Lord. This is us, church, right here in the Bible. We've been included. But then in verses 27 and 29, Paul quotes two texts from Isaiah to explain the amazing, what we might just say, the reduction of the Jews. Why are so few coming to faith in Christ? Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And, Paul adds, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, Paul is answering the question that he started with in chapter 9. Again, if the gospel's for the Jews first, then why are so many of rejected? It's not that God's word has failed. He's already told us, verse 6. It's not because there's some character flaw in God. God is righteous and good and all these things. The answer is given. God never promised to save all of them but a remnant. Only a remnant of them will be saved. God has willed and determined to only save some. How many of them will be saved, including, including us? How, how will they be saved, in other words? Only, what has He told us here? Only by the mercy of God. Only by His gracious choosing and His gracious calling. Verse 24, even us whom he has called. If anyone is is saved, it is entirely because of the mercy and the choice and the call of God. That's his answer. And if anyone is lost, it is entirely their responsibility. And somehow both of these things are true. I think... Again, I think all of us have some sense of this as believers in Christ. I, I've, just, I've never met a single Christian who, who came. You know, it said their testimony was, was something like, you know, I'm just so thankful that I initiated my salvation by my own free will. And one day I just woke up and I thought, you know, I'm just going to follow Jesus. And I followed Jesus and, and I did this and, and, I, and I, I believed in him and was saved and all these different things. I've never heard any Christian say that. Every testimony I've ever heard from a believer was like, you know what? God was working in my heart through ways I cannot even explain. Anybody say amen to that? It was friends coming to you, it was the sermons, it was Bible school, it was whatever, but, but there was, there was the mystery, there's a mystery about this, things happening. What prompted this was God strangely and wonderfully moving in us, calling us, pursuing us. It was Him and not us. It was Him. 
Don't you see that you can take no credit whatsoever for your salvation? It's just all of God. And the reason is, is because He gets all of the credit and praise for that. And I think we have it, again, in our sense of prayers for the lost. Again, I don't understand how all these things work together, and we'll talk about it some more next week again. Um, but, but I, I, again, I've never heard a Christian pray for their lost loved ones. Uh, something like this. Lord, you, you know, there's nobody named Ted here. I was going to use that name. Lord, please, please don't interfere too much in Ted's life. I mean, he is... <laughs> He's a rotten sinner, and he's making terrible choices in his life. But I just want you to use his free will to help him to choose you. I've never heard anyone pray that. What do we pray? We pray out of desperation, God, break through in his life. Do something, do anything in him. But save him, Lord. Save him. Isn't that true? Because here's what we know, Ted can't and he won't on his own. And that leaves us where we've been several times in Romans 9, isn't it? The great challenge, we come to this text and we're like, Lord, this is, I don't get all of this. It's, it's, it's above me. I don't understand how all these things work together. At the same time, I repented and believed and I remember that. We come to this text and we, we, we we're faced with this question. Will I, will I bow before him? What will I, will I say, oh, oh God, please have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me in your son, Jesus Christ. It's my only hope. We'll either say that or we'll say something like this. God... I'm bigger than you are. Like Pharaoh, I'll face you down. I'm going to go my own way. My goodness, can't you see the folly in that today? Can't you see the foolishness of anyone who would think that about God? Who are you, oh man? To talk back to God. Perhaps Hebrews, Hebrews 3, 7 and 8. Appropriate as we close. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. As in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Don't harden your heart. But instead... Confess your sin to God. Ask Him for His mercy. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Lord, once again, we're, we're humbled by these things. And I, I, I know that there's struggles with them, Lord, and questions. And, and uh, Lord, we've, we've tried to to study your word and, and to make it as clear as we possibly can. And yet I know there's still questions. And we humbly come before you, Lord, and we just confess you, Lord, as God, as righteous and good, even as we can't uh, understand. Uh, we, we put our trust in you today.
we trust you as good and faithful. And, and I pray that, 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 Lord, these texts would, if they don't do anything else, but they would humble us all and say, what, a, what an incredible sovereign God that you are. And may it lead to humility and worship. And may it lead, like it did Paul, uh, a desire, a greater desire for our lost family and friends and neighbors to be saved. We pray you would do your work in our lives even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.